I, I lived right next to my grandmother, who was very traditional, ate traditional food. We lived right on the water. So my job was actually to be her, by that time, when I was old enough to do the things that she needed to do with her health was failing a little bit. So she needed, still needed, and she still wanted her traditional food. So my job was to listen to her. You know, she would kind of push herself up onto the porch and say, go down the trail, the tide's out, go to these certain rocks, grab a, you know, grab a stick on your way out, and uh, kind of poke under those rocks, and there was a, you'd hear a noise, you know. And that was a grunter. They called it a grunter, but in her language, she called it, in our language, she called it a squat. So, but that was the foods that, in the, probably May, end of May, first part of June, that's when those fish showed up and, and, and laid their eggs underneath the rocks. So that's the foods that she she grew up with, and that's the foods the only foods that she knew. And so that when I when I get back to environmental science is that she was taught by her grandparents to look for those fish. You know, and she craved that <clears throat> craved those foods. So I would, we'd go get them, I'd go get them, my cousin, but whoever was there would go and we'd get those fish for her. We'd, we'd, we'd eat lunch with her, and that was her typical lunch, was probably boiled potatoes and those fish. And later on, you know, wintertime, you know how it is in, in Watkin County, it's, that would blow a northeast wind for a couple, three days, just hard. You know, where everything would ice up and about days after the, the northeast would quit, it, would get, it always breaks out, you notice it always breaks out and it's sunny. So, and she would say, go down, jump off the logs, go to the right, and place down uh, her beach that was called the sailing ground, it was a kind of a place where my uncles used to sing, they, they would sing smelt there, so that's why they called it the sailing ground. So anyway, she said, go down the beach, go down the way there, and you'll find a, she called it a scamel. And what that is, is an octopus. Mm -hmm. So what would happen is that on that northeaster blue, for that many days, it would roll those octopus up on the beach, and it would kill them for, for whatever reason. I don't know that either. But that's, she knew. And that's what was, she had been taught by probably her grandmother. So that's when I say, when I get back to saying that was my first introduction to environmental science, I didn't know it, but she was teaching me some things that I can hand down and teach my grandchildren. So later on in life, I, I become a fisherman. You know, my grandma basically has taught me to be aware. Be aware of your surroundings, be aware of where you're at. Be aware of the animals and the fish around you. And, and notice what, what they're doing. So that actually helped me become a better fisherman. 
I started fishing in the Nooksack River probably on my own, probably when I was 10, 12 years old. I used to borrow my dad's boat after school, they let me go down and fish once in a while. And later on in life, I fished with my dad, seining, and, and then later on, you know, it was, I was able to acquire my own boat, so I started fishing probably on my own in the late 70s. But then there was a, there was an abundance of, of fish that we, we fished quite a bit. Nowadays, we, you know, the Salish Sea is that last year we didn't fish sockeye at all. And sockeye are one of the most important fish to the Lummi people. Is that was always our economy, that was our trade, that was our way of life, that was our well-being. So last year we didn't fish, there wasn't enough fish to, to fish on. 2010 was probably one of the biggest sockeye runs since 1934. It was huge. I think there were 34 million sockeye that came back that year. It was just amazing. Fish jumping everywhere. Mm -hmm. But to go from 34 million to not being able to fish is quite <coughs> a shock, especially to me because I, that was the first year I haven't fished in, I would say, 50 years that I have not fished soccer. That's scary. How can you go from one year to 34 million harvestable fish to not be able to harvest one fish? So is that telling you there's something wrong in the Fraser River or there's something wrong in the Salish Sea? Or is there something wrong in the ocean? So, being able to fish that sailor's sea, you know, I fished herring in the early 70s. It was uh, from Hales Pass all the way up to Point Roberts. You know, there was, there was great. It was big here in the morning. We start sometime late March. Fish And for some reason, those herring have disappeared. The Cherry Point herring stopped. We haven't fished on that stock since 1980. So, it's not over So what is wrong in the Salish Sea? That's why those herring have not been here. We've seen one big spawn last year. I think I seen a aerial picture of on Portage Island. It was a big spawn. But that's one of the first ones I've seen in 20, 30 years. So, what, if I would like for any of you to challenge you to find out if this is really what you want to do, is find out more about that Cherry Point stock. It's a, I, would, I think it's a, uh, 
a resident stock. It doesn't. It never leaves the Gulf of Georgia. And you got to remember that that stock and that herring feeds birds, early Chinook salmon, late Chinook, probably coho mammals, killer whales, orcas, they call them barbecues. Then, but with that fish, that herring, that one biomass, cherry point herring disappearing, the domino effect is, uh, I don't think anybody has really comprehended, you know, I think they studied it for a while, when they have seen the decline, but I, I don't think that anybody has really picked it back up and really looking at it. So I would look, the reason I bring that in, up is I want people to be aware of that herring stock that was there and how, we can, how, how do we rebuild it or how do we stop the decline or what was the decline of that? Is it eelgrass? Is it water conditions? Is it ballast water from 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 ships changing? You know the chemistry of the water. Where the, you know there's refineries, there's an aluminum plant, there's three major industries right on that Cherry Point. Main spawning ground of that herring. So that's that's the scary part, and that's the part that probably people are shoving under the carpet once in a while that, that they don't, don't really want to be spoken of. But you know, as a fisherman, I would like to see those those stocks return because that is uh, the life of Salish Sea, and that would bring back. I remember, like, when I first started fishing herring, the, the, the old-timers would tell me, these are the birds you look for. You look for the seagulls, you look for the cormorants. Those are the ones that tell you that those fish haven't spawned yet. So those fish are harvestable. Those fish, when the seagulls are diving, the sea lions are there, you can see dogfish chewing on them once in a while. But those fish are the ones that are ripe and haven't spawned yet. And then if you see black ducks, what we would call um, chinchakin. That duck used to see it all the time. We'd see it for days, we'd see it for weeks. We'd be going south by in flocks for a while, and be going back north in flocks. And what they would do is eat herring roe. And that was why you knew that those fish have already spawned. No use going over there. No, but that's that's the environmental science that I know. Is that those fish have already spawned, so you know we're in good shape there. So, but those birds are gone now too. So you don't see those spawn. You don't see those birds because the spawn isn't there. So. And I want to talk a little about, a little bit about 
when that salmon disappeared, those herring disappeared, that the, the mental health that comes with the loss of of, of those resources as as a, as a Lummi tribal member or a First Nations tribal member is that your whole life and your grandparents' life, your great grandparents' life, your songs, your dances, everything is revolves around that salmon, those herring, or the resources that come out of that sailor's sea. It's like my grandmother was taught as a child to look for food. And in our songs and dances, we have a first salmon ceremony. I think it's in the middle of May, or the latter part of May, that we honor the salmon. It's an honoring ceremony, it's the first salmon ceremony. But I want to stress that in those ceremonies, it was always about giving thanks. It was never about asking or wanting, it was always about giving thanks. I think that there was. This territory, this Salish Sea, was always so abundant. You, you know, you didn't have to walk. All you had to do was know how to give thanks. So that's what a lot of our songs and our dances refer to as just giving thanks. So when I go back to mental health for our community, is the loss of salmon or herring is that it's always been our way of life, our economy, our trade. You know, we've developed a, a fishery that is called reefing. I don't know, does anybody know much about reefing? It's, it, it's, a, it's a technique that is, was invented by the Lummi Indians. It's still used today. It's an it's a, it's a environmentally friendly way of fishing. It's, it's just... It's just such a beautiful way of fishing that, but it was, we were banned from fishing like that for a while because they kicked us out of a lot of our, our fishing boats. But until the boat decision came in in 1974, then we were able to go back and fish in some of our traditional territories. And, and maybe I'll touch a little bit on the boat decision. Is there many that know the boat decision? And, uh, that reserved 50% of the salmon in, in the Puget Sound for 13 tribes. So with that, there's responsibilities too. So we manage half that resource. And, and I think that we hire some of the greatest biologists, some of the best biologists, some of the best minds in biology to help us with our resource. So that's why I'm here speaking to you, because some of you might be future employees of some of the tribes that employ a lot of people in their bio, biology, and you know, for, for, for enhancement, hatcheries. And I can speak about hatcheries like, let me, I think we put a million Chinook on that early 
run a Nooksack River that, that's probably May, June, and July. April, May, June, or April, May, and June. That's a million that we pump back into that, that system. Two million Chinook we, we pump into Coho in September and October. I think that's in a million summer Chinook that we, we put it back into the system. So we're, we're me as a fisherman, I, I'm promoting and trying to push for more hatcheries because the natural stock, yeah, it's there, but it's, it doesn't have the habitat. The watersheds are, are a little banged up from logging and, and some other things and silting up that, that the natural stock will have a hard time getting back to a number that, is, that we as a community of sports fishermen, tribal fishermen, Washington State commercial fishermen can, can target. So by pushing our hatcheries, we're pumping more fish into the system that it makes the Salish Sea stronger, becomes food for the Salish Sea, becomes food for the killer whales, becomes food even for the herring. So, and especially for the Chinook, which is, in the, and some of that stuff is, is under ESA, Endangered Species Act, of, of the early King Sound, and you know, that puts some restraints on, on a lot of things you can do. But in our in early eighties, probably nineteen eighties, our elders were talking with some of the biologists said that those those stocks were getting low. So we didn't fish on those stocks. We haven't fished on those stocks since nineteen eighty of the early Chinook. But they're not coming back in the numbers that we we thought they should be. They're not, so that's not overfishing. It's environmental, it's habitat. So, you know, and there's, there's, there's times in there where we can target, target some of the hatcheries. So that's why I'm saying that, you know, for people to fish, for sportsmen to fish, for seals, for sea lions, for killer whales, is that we have to figure out a way to push more hatcheries to get more fish into the system. And that's anybody's mental health. You ask any sportsman, why do you why do you fish? Well I just gotta get away. I gotta you know I gotta get my head straight. I gotta go out and enjoy nature. But if those fish aren't there you're not gonna get it. But for our community it's such a way of life that we really don't know what to get with We've seen it last year with a little bit where we didn't get the fish sockeye that you know, the first time I didn't get the fish sockeye in 15 years is the long as I've been fishing. And my wife could probably tell you I probably wasn't <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> probably I you know, it was it, I think it, it was a little shock, you know, and it was like 
what am I going to do? What are we going to do? You know, we, we never had fish to put in the freezer. We didn't have to put fish to put in the cans. We bought, lucky I had friends that fished Bristol Bay. I, you know, I asked them to send some fish down, and you know, that's the fish that we put in the freezer. It wasn't our traditional local fish, it was fish from Bristol Bay, Alaska. And from Costco. And Costco. <laughs> <laughs> but that, as a fisherman, that's kind of, that hurts the ego. <laughs> so, you know, and that's what I talk about in mental health, is you're not able to take care of your family, you're not able to teach your children, you're not able to teach your grandchildren. Then, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about how close that fishing is. Um, Arctic fish, fishing and Arctic, how, how it really connects our community. When I first started fishing like a lot on the, in the 70s or 80s, there was a, a little invention called the CB radio. Does anybody remember what the CB radio <laughs> Before the computer, before cell phones, that's all there was. That's the only communication you had from your boat to the mainland. And, like, I had a daughter born when I was fishing. So that's how I got, I got the message, hey Dana, you just had a daughter, but it took like from a landline to another boat to another boat to another boat to get to me. So everybody knows. So everybody knows that birthday. Everybody knows what they were doing at that time. Everybody knows how many fish they caught on that date, on that birthday. That was 1989. I had 400. 30 sockeye that morning. Hmm. So, that tells you how important the fish are. And that way, like. So, when I get back into mental health, that when you start losing that way of life, those connections, it's, it's kind of scary to not know that your children or your great your, your, your grandchildren, your great grandchildren will not know that that way of life. So that's why I'm here today and speaking about the Salish Sea, the importance of the Salish Sea, the health of the Salish Sea. And to young, you young people, that will be the future of maybe figuring out how to get more fish into that Salish Sea. It, you know, the Salish Sea might look beautiful from the beach looking out. But from the water looking in, Things that have disappeared. You know, I can leave from, let's say, Gooseberry Point. 
north wind blowing, northeast wind blowing, I can go past Sandy Point, I can smell, I can smell farmland. Go a little further, I can smell a antifreeze smell. Of, and all these smells from the refinery, you know, I go a little further up in the Boundary Bay, in the north wind blowing there, I can smell a chemical smell Delta in Delta BC. Who have, who has driven to up into Delta BC? Um, but you see all the the greenhouses that have taken over the fields. Those smells you could smell out on the Salish Sea. And you go around the corner at Port Roberts, and you can see coal dust blowing and the west wind blowing off the the, the coal terminals. You can see the coal in the tide rips. So, I spoke on behalf of the Lummi Nation and in the Salish Sea to the BC Energy Board, and that's what I that's what I try to explain to them is that the Salish Sea, where those oil tankers that are you, you, you are proposing to send down is 400 a year, 400 more a year with traffic, is that where they go is probably the tightest place they'll see on their journey to wherever they're sending that oil. It's right there in the Salish Sea in between Pagos and the Sierra Point. There's a reef on one side and there's an island on the other. You know, I don't know that statement on what if the U.S. side has, has ever asked for one on what would happen if there was a, an accident, an oil spill. But I know it would wipe out our clam digging. We wouldn't have to worry about the herring again. Look at, look at Valdez. I have friends that have fished Exxon in Valdez before the herrings, before the oil spill. And those herring stocks that still have not returned to, to a number that is anything near they used to be. So, with another 400 ships going through that narrow passage is scary. It doesn't even have to be human air. It could be equipment air. It can be electronical air. Because we don't even drive those ships anymore. They're done by computers. They're done by satellite. They're done... They're driven by electronics, probably computers, you know, and, and GPS. I just watched this deal the other night on National Geographic. There, a ship left Florida, and it, there was a typhoon coming. They knew it was coming, but the captain said, we can beat it. 
and we can make it past, and we'll just jog a little bit and we go past the typhoon. He left. He crawled in the, his stateroom for eight hours, and everybody kept saying that, you know, we're going to have to change the course here. So he's seeing here, it looks like, and he goes, and he, he calls him back and says, no, the information I'm getting here is that we're going to miss it. And everything's going to be fine. He didn't realize that the information he was getting was six hours late. So that ship is called the El Toro at actually end up sinking. And but that's was that was not the fault of this, the captain, it was the fault of the information he was giving. Hmm. So that's why I say with this vessel traffic that is where people are proposing to come to with the Morgan, Kimber Morgan pipeline, there's a lot of variables. And I don't think that any money in the world is worth losing the Sailor Sea. I've been fishing that Sailor Sea for probably on my own for 45 years, probably with my parents, probably 50 years, over 50 years. But when I first started fishing, it was like, I would say, fishing a green pasture. You know, there was nothing, there wasn't any traffic, there really wasn't any recreational boats, there wasn't a lot of tanker traffic. But now when I go fishing, I got, as soon as I leave and get, close to Point Roberts or somewhere that I have to call into Victoria Traffic to let them know that I am going to be in the area so just are aware that I'm going to be there. You know, I'm in contact with them constantly. But in the 70s and 80s, I didn't have to do that. But, you know, there's a new container facility put in Tuas and that thing is used. That, that's brought in more vessel traffic. I was crabbing last, maybe two springs ago in Belmont Bay. And that's where oil tankers from Anacortes queue up to go into Anacortes. Sometimes they're six, seven, eight deep in, 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 San, in Samish Bay. One day they're there and I come out and the next day they're, they're here. Three or four more. And that's, that's a really scary as a fisherman because I don't think a lot of the general public see that many ships queued up right here in Northampton. Is that, you know, we, we think we're in a pristine area that you know, nothing that's going to bother us. We're, 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 we're ahead of the things. And, Gonna, you know, but I think there's a lot of things that are hidden that the general public doesn't see. Just like those coal trains, they won't let those coal trains sit in front down here at Bellingham. They'll hide them up behind the trees, you know, from Birch Bay to Blaine. You know, people really don't see them. I drive. I keep my boat in Blaine's light. Slater Road, 
and go across the railroad track again to get to the marina and play. Get those, those, those coal trains, probably sometimes the same one twice a day. You know, I, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that the coal train did not, or the coal did, port did not go in at Cherry Point. And I hope that it doesn't go there. Because imagine what the fair, the, the vessel traffic would be if there's another port like that put at Cherry Point. I don't think the Herring would have a chance. In the Herring or the Canary, where the sailors see. So, when I get back to mental health and well-being of the community, that, you know, that was our way of giving thanks. So, we're still doing that. But now we're asked, now we're not giving for thanks. We're, we're, not, we're, not, we're not praying for it, to say thank you. Now we're praying for hope and singing for hopefully the comeback of the hearing of Sam. And that's. That's a different way of singing that we're used to. So with that, I'm happy to be here. If you have any questions, go ahead. <laughs> I was just thinking about that a while back, and that I, I grew up, like I said, right on Lummi Shore Road. And the sawmills used to keep a lot of logs over in Portage Bay. And they would send a little tugboat in there to grab those logs every once in a while. But when those tugboats would go in there, the next tide out of that, it would just be, you'd see eelgrass floating everywhere. So what I I I think that that eelgrass is gone. I don't know if it, I don't know that, but I think it's from silting up from something that's going on there. So I heard that that portage bay is silting up, but it's not growing that eelgrass the way it used to. I was wondering your uh, your sermon during the end on fish farms and aquaculture. Well. I think that fish farms are, are, are not the way to go. At least hatchery is it's taken from a nasty fish. fish. With fish farms, there comes a lot of diseases, and I think that fish farms kill a lot of habitat. I think it's a proven fact that 
with all the fish with the fish farm being there underneath those fish farms becomes a, a wasteland. It just kills everything. So, I, I, so a fish farm is not the way to go. And uh, has anybody ever eaten? Uh, has anybody ever eaten a, a fish, a farm fish? It tastes like. It tastes like carrot. It doesn't taste like salmon. But I really don't think that fish farms are the way. It's you know everything. It's a the meat is dyed. It looks red in the store, but really it's a white fish that they dye. They put dye in the food. So that makes it red. Costco, how do we know if that's a hatchery fish or a farm fish? The salmon. Oh, because it has to say farm fish on it. Hatchery fish, it doesn't have. Like, people don't realize that most of the fish that come out of Southeast Alaska are hatchery fish. But the further you go into Bristol Bay, Cook Inlet, and stuff like that, those are more unnatural fish. So whenever they, everybody, that's why I'm, I really am pushing for it. The, the state is closing down more hatcheries than they're, than they're um, pumping money into. So, you know, they have a responsibility in this too, is to build up this, these hatcheries. That's why I say everything looks pretty good from the beach looking out. On the water looking in, it doesn't look that great. And I think that, you know, there's three stakeholders in salmon. You got tribal, you got commercial, and sport. And it's easy to point your finger at the fishermen. It's everybody's responsibility to put their egos aside, put the finger pointing aside, and come to the table for the best interest of the fish and figure out how to get more fish into the system. Any more questions? So, if I'm doing my fish as a young man right when the bolt decision was passed. I fished before the bolt. A little bit before the so was that like personally when that decision was passed for you and your community? Was it unbelievable, exciting, or did it take a while before you realized what was happening? What was it like back when that was passed for you? I was fishing already. I fished with my dad. My dad fished under a state license. So we fished under Washington State license. So we fished. So we were always able to fish in the boundaries of the reservation. What the bolt decision did was allowed us to fish to go off the reservation and fish. 
And yeah, it was a pretty exciting time. But I think this is where I might get in trouble. But I think this is with that bolt decision, a lot of the headaches started, a lot of the, the heartaches started, and a lot of the sourness came from was having to get some, is, is to have to get, get some of that fish back to the tribes. So therefore, I think that the state was saying we're going to start cutting back on some of our, our production and our tattoos and stuff. That's my only, that's my opinion. That's not the tribe's opinion. So, and that's why everybody's got to come back to the table with a clear mind now and say, hey, for the good of these fish and the good of all our communities, that we have to start pumping some money and pumping some fish back into the system. You know, I think we're getting there, we're getting close, and I think that is that it's all about trust. We've got to start trusting each other, and, and especially with the sports. Tribal commercial fishermen and, and the state commercial fishermen, we're there. We're, we're, we're together on a lot of these things. Without the tribal fishermen, the state fishermen would go to the wayside. So, now we're, we, we have to get into a, a place where we can get really get to know each other and, and it's all about fish. There's another user group though, there's, there's four user groups and there's another one that, that people don't like to speak about and that's SEAL. <laughs> what is, you know, nobody really wants to talk about what, what, what the predators are actually taking. It, I don't know, and I'm thinking that it's almost going to get to the point now where they're going to starve themselves. It's happened in California, it can happen here. So, any more questions? Um, There's a good example of the get it off the gala and clam up with the fisher and the sport of the, the fishing out in the Fraser and that sort of thing. So, so you, you, you suggest that you might have to seek the people understanding that. I'm just wondering what kind of pressure you might be getting from the you got big money there, and so how do you how do you confront people dangling lots of money in front of you to, to, to do what they want? I think that's where you get, like I said, you get all three user groups in a room, and, and because if you're not amongst each other, and then you can concentrate on the big play for the for the good of the sale of That's what I said is that's the hidden. That's the stuff that gets that's the scary part. And how much how who's controlling really controlling what. But I think that if we can get those three user groups be able to start trusting each other. Like, the Salish Sea is probably the last place in the, let's say, in, in the United States, I would say, that has this unique 
body of water. And we have control of it if we just come together and do it right. Well, I'm kind of out of the loop on that, but I know that we've been working on that for quite a while, and, and that's what I'm saying about trusting each other. That was a real battle to get the tribes and the farmers together to figure out really what was going on in the Nooksack River. Is it is it is it runoff from the the farm fields? Is it Bob jams, what is it? But you know, now, now that they're in the same room, they can look at it and not point the finger at each other. Let's really find out what the problem is. You know, stay out of court and concentrate on the real problem. Not that, but you know, really look at the problem. And you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about seeing what the future looks like in that because it's, you know that's, that's a great group of people that are working together on that. What do you think of the um, why we're running the recovery goal for Chinook being only about 10 to 15% of the soil funded? Pardon me? The uh, recovery goal for wild Chinook is only I think that's back to what is the ultimate problem? Is it the river? Is it the estuary? Is it creation? Is it water conditions in the city? Is it water conditions in the ocean? Like I said, that, that stock has never been fished on for over 40 some years, so it's not overfishing. So what really is the problem? That's a good question. Because that's that's always been my question is what what is it? You know, you know our estuaries around here have been really I don't think there there is any anymore. Our our harbors have become the estuaries. You know, that's where the small fish they go in and they go that they, they acclimate for a while and then they head out. But I'm gonna tell you a story about before like when I grew up next to my grandmother there on the Shore Road, it's like, and she would tell me to go get her, her food. But one morning we wake up, it's, it's in June, and these are the meanest, meanest low water of the year. It's where the tide goes out the furthest. And there's two D8 Army cats pushing all the, all the rocks up into the let me show a road to hold the road from falling in. And can you imagine that? But they, you know, they, we, we're smart enough. We would not do that today. But that was, that was, that was common practice in the 60s, 50s and 60s. Just do whatever you want to do. So they pushed all the rocks up against the bank to try to keep Mummy Shore Road from caving in and landslides. But it was great for me as a kid. I was saying, oh man, we got Sandy Beach now. We don't have to go swimming on the rocks. <laughs> I loved it as a kid, but as I grew older, I started thinking about it. What? 
We wouldn't do that today. But that was the Army Corps of Engineers that was doing that. But, you know, we all, we all get smarter. We all figure it out at some point. But the funniest thing, within five years, all those rocks were back in the table. <laughs> Every one of them, the boulders, everything was back in the same place. But as I remember it, eight to ten years ago, with my grandma's all splashed back. Any more questions before? Thank you. There will be a little bit. There, you know, we, I think we will. We might get a, a day or two. But last year, but so, you know, we, we usually send one boat out to get what they call the CNS vaccine. Thank you. Thank you.